Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm aces. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, uh, it, it's Black Widow versus Mickey Mouse. Scarlett Johansson uh, sues Disney for taking her first solo superhero film to VOD as well as theaters. Uh, in a shocking move, the Lost in Translation and Lucy star filed suit against the House of Mouse for its dual release strategy, which she and her team claims will cost her more than $50 million in back-end bonuses. Disney responded uh, to her suit by basically, and I, I really don't think I'm exaggerating too much here, uh, but they suggested that she is callously hoping that people die by going back to the movie theaters. Uh, also, she can make a few extra bucks. And this is on the same weekend that Disney released Jungle Cruise in theaters, mind you. Um, and also on Disney+. Plus. And also on Disney+. Plus. The whole thing is really pretty interesting, uh, in part because you'd think that Disney would have learned some lessons from Warner Brothers and their decision to pay out more than $200 million in additional salary uh, to the stars of its films when they moved WB's entire theatrical slate to HBO Max uh, and theaters simultaneously. But Disney's business model is based on big characters, not big stars and not big directors. Uh, so they don't have, you know, a Denzel Washington type leading the charge in, in the background. They have Scarlett Johansson suing them in public. Um, and maybe they just aren't too worried about keeping little people like ScarJo happy. Um, then again, maybe they just don't want to pay up if they don't have to. Uh, as Eric Gardner noted in The Hollywood Reporter, these contracts typically have arbitration clauses, and the language in the suit uh, itself suggests that she's trying to do an end, end run around the arbitration. She doesn't want to have to deal with sitting down with an arbitrator and explaining things. And even if it doesn't go to arbitration, even if it goes to trial, the, the actual literal language in the contract may just favor Disney, um, as there's nothing in the guarantee that the film will open on 1,500 screens at least, that excludes a simultaneous streaming run. Um, factor in uncertainty over COVID and everything else, and Disney might well have a winning case. Um, Alyssa, even if Disney wins by the pure letter of the law, doesn't this sort of thing hurt them uh, both with the stars that they need for their movies uh, and the audiences who have grown attached to these actors? Uh, or are the audiences more enthrall of the masks than the men and women behind them? I think this is a really interesting question. I suspect that part of Disney's willingness to play hardball here is that um, they envision a permanent strategy in which they are splitting um, their releases between theatrical and video on demand and want to sort of lay down a marker for what the new way of doing business is going to be. But I also think that part of what's been interesting about the Marvel project is that it has taken actors who were, you know, I mean, famous enough to be in movies or had one point sort of been famous enough to be in movies and turned them sort of turn them into stars. And what I mean by that is, you know, when Robert Downey Jr. signed up to play Iron Man, I think it was considered a little bit of a gamble, right? I mean, yeah. he had kind of famously sort of washed himself out of Hollywood due to his various addictions. Uh, he was definitely not sort of at the peak of his star power. And really nobody that they have brought in uh, for these movies has been kind of at their prime earning level, box office draw, et cetera. The, the Eternals is a little bit of an exception to that just because Angelina Jolie is in that and she is legitimately an A-list star. Um, they're catching Gemma Chan sort of on her way up. Um, there, are, you know, there are slightly fewer actors there who Disney has the chance to really make 
someone significant. But a lot of what Disney has done is, you know, is find these actors who are charming, who will do the publicity tour stuff really well, who will be, you know, pretty compelling in these roles and, um, you know, caught them on the way up, not sort of at the plateau at the top or the way down. And Johansson was a little different to a certain extent. Just by the time she started playing Black Widow, she did have some of these roles that had established her as, you know, sort of a pretty serious dramatic actress. Um, And it was getting her for Natasha Romanoff was kind of fun because it was sort of a riff on her reputation. Um, But I think broadly, Disney is probably pretty comfortable sending a message here. Like, hey, you're not necessarily going to be a huge deal. We're going to pay you a lot of money comparatively. And you know what? Backends are over, not just because of the pandemic, but because of larger changes in this ecosystem that have been driven by streaming. Um, and so, you know what? Get used to it. If you didn't have an ironclad clause in your contract that says not only, you know, were we going to do a typical theatrical release, but this was going to run exclusively in theaters, you know, 1,500 theaters for X number of days, like, you had a luck negotiating that, and we're not going to put something that specific in your contract again. I do think the personal language of the response is very un-Disney and... Uh, Friend of the podcast, uh, Richard Rushfeld, noted in his newsletter that this comes shortly after Disney's longtime publicity chief retires. Um, and so it's possible that there is sort of a new regime here that is, you know, getting a little punchy and doesn't necessarily have the messaging right on target in a way that would be useful. So that's worth taking into consideration. Yeah, I mean, Peter, uh, you know, there there really are two separate issues here. There's there's a letter of the law issue. There's a there's a what does the contract say issue, right? There there's that. There's that whole end of this. And then there's there's you know, in Hollywood, you have a business that is based on relationships and being, uh, you know, good and and friendly with people, or at the very least, you know, kind of respectful um, of them and and what they want. Uh, and I think that's what you saw in HBO's case where HBO and Warner Brothers, you know, they're like, all right, we want to work with directors like Dennis Villeneuve. We want to work with actors like Denzel Washington. We need to make them happy and, sh- and make sure that they will, they will keep working with us. But, but, you know, Disney is kind of the big kid on the block. They don't really have to, they don't really have to be friendly with anyone. If you're controlling 80% of the, you know, domestic box office, and if you're, uh, you have the biggest new streaming platform on the rise and you've got the best IP, like maybe they're just, they're just, you know, uh, throwing their antitrust worthy weight around. Man, I don't believe in antitrust, so I don't think any weight is worthy of it. Mm. Um, Look, uh, as Alyssa said, the specific language in the contract on just a a, a really um, precise sort of letter of the law favors Disney here because it does not guarantee a theatrical exclusive release. It simply says that if they do decide to release the movie, they have to put it in 1,500 theaters, which they did. Um, They just also put it online uh, on Disney Plus at the same time. Um, and her argument is basically that, look, yes, it doesn't actually say 
that uh, it, it's going to be an exclusive theatrical release. But in 2019, when this uh, when this was arranged, when this contract was drawn up, everyone would have assumed. And she points to um, to a, 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 an email from a Marvel lawyer that says, look, this release, if and when we do it, is going to look like all of our other releases. It's going to be a standardized release. That's what we're promising you right now. There's a question about whether that sort of ancillary material that isn't actually in the contract, right? That's not that's not contractual language. It's just a, a lawyer sort of colloquially explaining kind of what they think it means um, in an email. There's a question about whether that's going to be allowed to be introduced into court. And so the court um, is going to have to decide whether the language is ambiguous or not, which means they're going to have to look at the plain language and decide, well... What would people have thought that meant? And in one sense, Scarjo is right. In 2019, everyone would have thought that the language in this contract uh, meant that it was going to be an exclusive theatrical release because it would have been, in fact, crazy to just uh, to dump this thing to Disney Plus as they have done, um, provided that there was no pandemic. But then the pandemic happened. And of course, uh, you know, everything got got blown up in Hollywood. Um, And so... I don't know how this is going to go legally. I don't really have a I don't feel like I have a, a good enough sense of of the precedents here or how judges think about these things. But I think what's clear and what's most interesting to me about this is that Scarlett Johansson wants this to be negotiated in public. That is her bet. Yeah. She is she is decided that it is in her interests uh, to to have this in open court, in full public view so that so that the viewers so that normal people can see what Disney is doing because she has, like you said, she has tried to evade uh, the arbitration clause because the arbitration clause is apparently just with Marvel studios, which is sort of a sub studio within Disney. So that's why she's suing Disney because she doesn't apparently have a strict arbitration clause with Disney. Now this may end up in arbitration anyway. This may end up going uh, into some sort of a negotiated deal. But what Scarlett Johansson wanted to do was lay down a marker and say, look, I want the world to know how Disney is operating here because I think that performers, or at least that this particular performer, me, is going to be better off if the public is aware of how this is going. And she, in fact, has more of an incentive to do that than just about anyone because her character is dead in the MCU and she doesn't have to sort of she she's a big star uh, already so she doesn't have to uh, sort of hope that Disney is going to play nice with her for the rest of her career she can basically say Disney this is the last time I'm going to work with you I'm going to sue you to make you pay up um and uh and then I'm going to go work for other studios for the rest of my life if that's what I want to do and so I it's a really interesting test case and I think in the future all of this is going to be handled will absolutely be handled in arbitration as most of this stuff kind of is already like this sort of thing happens all the time right it's just yeah. we don't mostly see it because most of the time it's it is locked into arbitration by contracts up front and most of the time the stars in question don't have the kind of power uh, or incentives that scarlett johansson has to make all of this public I am uh, I am very curious what you guys think the actual response from from normal folks is going to be on this, because I, I uh, on the one hand, you think like, oh, people like actors, they want to take their sides because they think we you think, you know, them. And that's like the whole point of being a star is, you know, that that sort of personal. Yeah. Re- and on the other hand, Disney went out of their way to leak that she made a 20 million dollar upfront payday 
which is like, right. like well, most is, people are going to look at that and be like, dude, you got paid $20 yep. million dollars for what? Three, four months worth of shooting, a couple well, of months of prep and like three weeks of, of doing press for this. There's there's that. But on top of that, I I think I think the Disney super fans that ScarJo is most going to need to be on her side on this identify more with Disney than they do with Scarlett Johansson. They, identi- they identify more with Marvel and the Marvel logo and the Disney logo than they do Scarlett Johansson. And I, I say this because I, you know, I, I keep I keep an ear, an ear out for what the 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 crazy people are saying, the Ray Lowe's and that sort. And the response from them, as best as I can tell, has almost uniformly been, well, bye, girl. You're gonna try and you're gonna try and I saw somebody, I saw somebody literally say, like, we all want Loki season two, but if they if they lose fifty million dollars to Scarlett Johansson, they can't afford Loki season two. And they'll never be able and we'll never have any more Marvel shows. And I just like, I just wanted to, I wanted to reach through my computer screen and start slapping people because this is look, I like I don't I don't have a horse in this fight. I'm not Scarlett Johansson's uh relative. I don't I'm not gonna see any of this money either way. It's not like Disney is going to lower their prices on on Disney Plus if I don't if if they if they win this case and save their 50 million dollars. Um so I I don't I don't have a horse in this fight, but I do think that like people I I think that I think that if she thinks that she is going to be hailed as a conquering hero by the masses that she is sorely mistaken. I think Alyssa? it's a tougher bet um than she thinks it is. Yeah, I think that's probably right. The one thing I would say is that you know, to a certain extent, not that Scarlett Johansson on any level recognizes ordinary working people, but a lot of people have been sort of whiplashed by their employers in the last year due to COVID. You know, you're leaving the office. We, don't, I mean, and this is applies specifically to sort of white collar professionals like all of us. But, you know, it's you're leaving the office. We don't know when we're coming back. Um, you know, we may or may not pay for your office equipment or your expenses. You're required to come back. You're required to get vaccinated. Now, wait, you're going to have to wear a mask in the office. And I do wonder if there is some latent, like, sentiment of, you know, I am just so tired of being kind of spun around by my employer that I sort of sympathize on some level. Um, And, you know, again, I think that, like, I don't think anyone's going to come out looking terribly good in this. I also suspect that Disney will, you know, I mean, Disney has... If she threw a glove that it was unadvisable to throw, Disney has certainly responded in about the worst possible way that it could have. I don't understand how you don't say something that's like, look, she's making a lot of money, but also it is just not clear when normal theatrical movie going was ever going to come back here's some extra money. We were trying to just sort of move forward in a way that keeps our business model plausible. Like, let's get real about what you could expect under these circumstances. Um, And instead, they're like, no, she wants people to personally die of COVID-19 so she can make more money. So so actually just crazy. uh, I wonder if this is going to redound in a way that hurts young performers. So I don't know if you guys heard the story about when – I want to say it was the audition for Wonder Woman, but it might have been another major role. I, 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 uh, it was a superhero movie with a starring role. 
And they were looking for somebody who had some level of visibility, but was not already a major star. And what they did was they said, you're in the top five um, for when they were with, uh, when they were doing the auditions. Uh, the, what the studio did was they said, you're in the top five. And so in order, we're, we want you to come back and do one more audition. But before you do that, and before we tell you whether or not you we want you for the role, we are going to make you preemptively agree to a payment for the first two movies. And it's like a relatively low payment. Like I, my recollection is it was something like $300,000 for a film. That's a lot of money, but in a world where these stars can easily make well into seven, even eight figures for a single film, it's not a lot of money. Now, it's setting them up to make a lot of money, you know, five or 10 years after, right, as the sequels sort of play out um, in the way that Robert Downey Jr. didn't really make his mega bucks until Avengers um, because the way the contract was set up. But my... The, the goal was basically to get to the point where when they found the, the actor or actress they wanted for this role, that person could not then at that point renegotiate with additional leverage. And, right, it's designed to keep the younger, yeah. Yeah. less well, established stars yeah. uh, from, from sure. taking big payouts. And my, what I, I guess what I wonder here is, is the result of this going to be that the people, the stars who have mega leverage already, uh, the Scarlett Johansons, the Will Smiths, that sort of – that caliber of, of, of person going to be able to say, look, up front, I want a giant payment. And then also I want you to buy out my typical back end, right? So you're going to give me, you, and actually, we're just, I don't care if this goes straight to streaming. What we're just going to do is I'm not even going to have a back end. You're just going to pay me an extra 20 after this thing gets released, whatever the number is, right? Whereas the, the, the folks with no profile are just going to be sort of stuck in, in positions where it's like, look, you can come here and you can play a superhero role. And maybe 10 years from now, you'll have leverage and be able to ask for $20 million. But up front, we're going to pay you as little as possible and we are just going to lock this down because frankly and, you're and also the and also the long-term bargain is yeah. going to be worse and that actually seems like a sort of stupid thing for disney to do because you yeah. don't actually want to pay have to pay will smith 80 million dollars to be in a single superhero movie what you want is someone who you can get slightly on the lower end and amortize over like a 20-year contract because that's what these are going to turn into yeah, I mean, I remember when it was a really big deal that um, Samuel L. Jackson signed to a nine-movie deal with Marvel. And then, of course, yeah. it worked out great for both of them. And now he is the uh, he is the crowned biggest box office star in history because he's been, like, fourth build in, you know, four blockbusters a year for 30 years now. Yeah. Uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that ScarJo has filed suit against Disney? Uh, Alyssa? Definitely a controversy. Peter. Total controversy. It is a controversy. Uh, and hopefully she wins. I don't know. Take that, Disney. You're going to have to pay some millions. Uh, if you enjoy the show, and who doesn't, it's great. Make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, uh, where we'll have a bonus members-only episode in which Alyssa tries to sell Peter and I, and you, uh, on going to see the new Matt Damon movie, Stillwater. Is it worth our and your time? Listen and find out. Uh, and now on to the main event, The Green Knight, David Lowry's spin on Arthurian legend, starring... 
Dev Patel as Sir Gawain just before he becomes a Sir. He's not quite a Sir yet. He's not a Knight of the Round Table. He's he's about to be, but you know, we'll see. Uh, the Green Knight follows Gawain on a quest uh, following a strange occurrence at a Christmas party with King Arthur and his knights. A tree-like man comes to the court and offers to play a game, land a blow against him, and they can have the Green Man's axe. But in return, one year hence, the Green Knight is allowed to return the same exact blow, blood for blood, strike for strike, etc., etc. Uh, Gawain accepts and somewhat foolishly chops off the Green Knight's head. Um, awkward, given that the knight stands up and then uh, grabs his head and rides out of the chapel laughing the whole way like the headless horseman uh, in Ichabod Crane's tale. Um, uh, after this uh, follows the quest, uh, it, it, it involves everything you might expect in some such thing. There are bandits. Uh, there's a friendly fox. There's a headless ghost who has a head. That makes much more sense in context if you see the movie. Uh, and weird nude giants uh, that kind of roam the landscape. And a castle with a lord and a lady who seem to be really into cuckoldry. Um, also shrooms. There are shrooms in this movie. Uh, this is by no means a unique insight. Uh, but as I was watching it and as I was writing my review afterwards, I, I realized that the movie that this reminds me of is less John Borman's Excalibur or Guy Ritchie's Chav King Arthur, uh, so much as Martin Scorsese's The Passion of the Christ. Uh, it is, ep uh, I'm sorry, not The Passion of the Christ. Uh, yeah. The Last Temptation of Christ. Last Temptation of Christ, sorry. Um, uh, it is It is. I would, I would watch Martin Scorsese's The Passion Martin, of the Martin Christ. Martin Scorsese's The Passion of the Christ would be a much different <laughs> movie. I would watch, I, and I would watch Mel Gibson's The Last Temptation of Christ, too. That would be an interesting oh, man. little flip-flop. Um, uh, but anyway, this movie, The Green Knight, is episodic in nature. It's beautifully shot. Uh, it's devastatingly acted. And the final moments offer up a glimpse at a life lived without honor and the emptiness that that means. Um, but here's the thing about the movie. It's deeply weird. It's just a weird movie. I mean, it looks good, sure, uh, but it's a narrative mess that really only makes sense if you're familiar with the source material. Uh, and like I always say, a movie can't require homework to make sense. That's not fair. It's not fair to the reader uh, or the viewer. Uh, it has to be self-contained. And I, I was honestly a bit surprised that the cinema score, um, that is the poll of real moviegoers taken after opening night, was as high as it was at a C+. Um, no, that is still very bad. For instance, Jungle Cruise got an A-, and that movie's a, a giant pile of steaming crap for the most part. Um, uh, but it could have been worse. Loyal listener Jake wrote in to tell me uh, that the version in theaters now makes way more sense than the festival cut that was making the rounds uh, last year or the year before, whenever that was in, in, in the festivals. Um, uh, but I have no doubt that normie audiences are going to watch this and be flummoxed and annoyed by what they saw. Again, the giant new giants that serve no real purpose in the story. Going to be a problem for a lot of people. Um, uh, Peter, you weren't flummoxed by this beautiful nonsense movie, were you? Well, I was, but in the best possible way. I, I just, I enjoyed the flummoxing. I want to go back and be flummoxed again over and over and over by the Green Knight and by, uh, and by Sir Gawain. No, so you said um, it was an, it's a narrative mess, and I believe that there's another cut that's much more of one, but I, I, I didn't think it was a narrative mess. I just sort of thought um, it was very episodic in nature, and you just sort of have to treat it as a bunch of kind of linked, almost short stories uh, that are, that have, you know, that are relatively self-contained, but don't necessarily have a strong plot logic connection between each other. Um, because this isn't a movie 
movie that is driven by plot logic. I think that's, you know, a, a, an understatement. This is a weird art trip movie. It is about, right, it's like it's swords, weird monsters, like fucking fate, the emptiness of existence, the inevitability of death, and also like what to do on Christmas. Um, and, you know, it's just, it, it's just a totally devoted to its own completely hallucinatory dream logic, um, right? In a way that I absolutely loved because like this is this is the kind of movie that I will watch again and again and again late at night, sometimes when I can't sleep um, because it's so wrapped up in itself that it's going to take me out of my own brain. And and in a way, you know, it, there are two movies actually that it reminded me of. Um, one a little bit is Pig, uh, not in the sense that Pig felt like this. Pig is a very different vibe. It has much more of a sort of conventional and realistic narrative logic. But Pig is another movie that, like The Green Knight, uh, exists entirely for its own sake, right? There's no obvious commercial niche that Pig is feeling. No one is like, oh, man, let's let's get Nicolas Cage to do Taken with a Pig, except it's not really an action movie at all. It's just a kind of quiet philosophical treatise on how Portland is eventually going to be destroyed by a volcano and our lives are empty, but they need feeling. Um, right? No, nobody was like, that's, that's a, oh, we all know that kind of movie. It comes out every, every couple of months and like Disney just churns them out. There's a total formula, right? Like, like Green Knight, Pig, you know, is those two movies are just sort of, they exist for their own, entirely for their own sake. And then the other thing that this really reminded me of um, was 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is another quite episodic, um, somewhat difficult film that doesn't, you know, it has maybe a little more plot logic, but it is not really heavily driven by narrative. It's, um, and it's just like a trippy ass vibe, right? And you go, and if you're into substances, maybe, maybe there's a substance involved and you just sort of let this thing wash over you. And that's that's the best way to treat the Green Knight. That's what I enjoyed about it. And that's why I'm going to come back to this movie. I know again and again and again over the years. Alyssa, what did you make of the Green Knight? Uh, so as the probably the biggest sort of Arthurian legend nerd on this podcast, um, I really appreciated this, both for the sort of specific deep cuts into that legend um, and for the sense of being immersed in a mindset that frankly is sort of extinct and non-accessible, right? I mean, Peter is talking about the movie as, you know, in sort of a modern language that we can understand about sort of a vibe, a trippiness, but it's also just rooted in a moral system that is not applicable anymore, that we don't really have access to, where sort of honor is incredibly important, um, the chivalric ideal is important, where people believe in magic in a really profound way and you know, don't have access to a modern scientific understanding of the world where they believe in the existence of the saints. Um, there's actually a great line in Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, which is also sort of conjured up for me, um, although Wolf Hall is very much a story set at kind of the fulcrum be between this kind of pre-modern age and the modern era that's coming into being about, you know, you, you'll go into the woods and you may meet a dwarf or the living Christ or, you know, an, an enemy that you don't recognize, that there is this sense that the world is huge and mysterious and not explicable and that you are sort of a small person within it and your, your honor is the thing that protects you. And, 
you know, Gowan is someone who, I mean, the New York Times amusingly described him at the beginning of the movie as like a fail son who has kind of been, but the sense that in which he's a fail son is that he has not quite absorbed this idea that honor is sort of helpful and protective, right? I mean, he's messing around with this prostitute and generally not attending to his duties. And he shows up at King Arthur's court on Christmas and is sort of asked for his story. And he says, I have none to tell. And Guinevere, who's portrayed as sort of older and kind of a severe figure here, um, there are, um, you know, says, yet, you don't have a story to tell yet. Um, And so that sort of journey into that mindset, I think, is as difficult to comprehend as a lot of visually what you see in the movie. Um, But it's, if you know anything about either sort of Britain's attempt to write a history of itself or the Arthurian legend, it's amazing sort of how the level of detail that David Lowery has conjured up in this movie, right? I mean, everyone's talking about the sort of trippiness of the naked giants. You know, that's a reference to the sort of Albina founding myth of England that emerges in the 14th century around the time that this specific chivalric romance is being written that suggests that essentially a bunch of murderous, rebellious women are cut loose in a ship. They land in England, which is unpeopled. Um, They found a race of giants and they named the country after the oldest sister, Albina. Um, And so, you know, that's something that's never explained within the context of the movie. But there is this idea of Britain as sort of an unpeopled land of giants um, that is you know, clearly influencing that kind of scene. You have this moment when, you know, Gawain is riding through this, you know, just ruined battlefield and meets a, you know, boy who seems very off, turns out to be a bandit. And he, the boy asks him about King Arthur and sort of credits Arthur with killing, it's a very specific number, right? It's 960 men. Uh, alone. And that's a reference, again, to a key part of the sort of early Arthurian legend that suggests that he personally killed 960 people at the Battle of Baden. You know, you have all the weird witchcraft stuff that's going on with uh, Gawain's mother early in the film, uh, which, again, is a reference um, to a part of the Gawain story, the idea that his mother, Morgaust, Queen of Orkney, um, and may have had, you know, some connection to the witchcraft of Avalon, which is something that Marion Zimmer Bradley in her revisionist Arthurian history, um, the priest of uh, the um, the mist of Avalon, you know, turns Morgaus into this sort of outcast character from this magical tradition. And so, you know, this is this is a movie that I think a lot of people will see as you know, kind of random and trippy and strange, and in fact is actually reflective of a really deep engagement with and sort of mining of a major literary tradition um, in a way that I found really striking and interesting. And you don't have to know any of that to understand what's going on, right? Or to to, to immerse yourself in this. But it's really impressive if you sort of care about that storytelling tradition at all, which I do since I've been rambling facts at all of you for five minutes. Uh, No, I think this is a very useful explainer. Uh, yeah. on on Ar- Arthurian legend in the Green Knight, but I, I have a question because I, sure. I as again as I was writing it, as I was writing my review of of this movie, 
I realized, uh, oh, I don't know, about halfway through that I don't think that the words Arthur or Guinevere yep. are spoken. Uh, there's no Merlin, certainly. I don't think Mor- Morgaus there, gets, gets there, mentioned. There is a figure who's supp- clearly supposed well, to be the Merlin. Right, no, no, yeah. there's, there's clearly a Merlin, like the guy who like turns red when the Green Knight shows up. He, in, you know, yeah. he, the, the, he's clearly doing some sort of magic to determine whatever this thing is. I mean, it, look, my point here is that none of these things are actually said aloud. That, yep. that, that this is not... Uh, this is this is not this is not you know uh, explicitly stated. It's all implied. We yeah. we have to we have to bring whatever we have to the story to understand it. And on the one hand, I I kind of appreciate that as a storytelling method. And I think that there is something to be said for that in in a in a broader cultural sense that like you know we live we live in a post we live in a post biblical age right we live in this post kind of Christian fundamental idea as the bedrock of storytelling or post whatever, post post legend, post myth. If, if everything isn't spelled out, people don't know what the basis is because they have no, they don't, they don't understand the references. Um, so I, I like, on the one hand, I kind of appreciate the Green Knight for being a, a bit of a throwback to something that exists as uh as as a thing that rests upon other storytelling foundations right yeah. like I, I think there's something very interesting there on the other hand this is a movie that was released on 2700 screens uh in every city in America and yeah I, like I I have a hard time faulting people who watch this and are like what the, what is what is this yeah I mean I'm writing a column about sort of that reaction this week and the fact that sort of making the case for the idea that sometimes it's good for pop culture to be ga- to be a gamble, right? It's, you know, I think the screening that Peter and I went to on Thursday night, um, since this wasn't screened for critics in D.C., I actually remarked was sort of surprisingly full to me um, for a movie that's like, who's... The weirdness of this movie was evident in the trailer, let's be yes. clear, right? I mean, it's, it's a story about... Dev Patel fighting a large ant. Uh, <laughs> really a like, small ant, like a, yeah, a, a modestly sized true. ant. Yeah. Um, yes. And like the naked giants are in the trailer, right? Like this is not, none of this is a surprise. So given all of that, I was kind of gratified by how many people showed up. And I think there's a real virtue in just gambling your time and your 13 bucks and being like, either this will be transcendent and or this will be weird as hell in a way that's actually offensive. But I do think there is something actually kind of a little bit daring, even in its conservatism, in a movie that assumes, let me put it this way, it doesn't assume a level of cultural literacy that you might have been able to assume 50 or 60 years earlier in American mass culture. But it works a little bit better and brings something extra to the table if you have the kind of cultural literacy to interpret it. And I think that's kind of gutsy, not least because you know, there are just not a lot of movies out there that take a very high view of the potential literacy of the audience. Um, and I appreciate that. Um, I feel I felt respected by it in a way that I don't often do at the movies. And, you know, maybe I'm just a dork and, you know, nothing caters to me. Um, I mean, look, I'm definitely a dork. Like, Hollywood is not oriented towards my particular weirdness. Um, 
but it's nice to see a beautifully produced mass entertainment that says, you know what, you will enjoy this if you are, if you have access to a certain body of knowledge. Um, like, go ahead. The Easter eggs aren't just here for you if you've read a lot of Wikipedia, but if you've read the actual texts, I think that's awesome. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's I think that's right, and I I think it's um, as somebody who is not you know uh, a, a medieval scholar um, or even close, and has not read uh, the original story, I just find that it worked totally on a level of pure cinema um, that I that I appreciated in that sense, and the, the ability to sort of work on both levels. Yes, um, I think is uh, is part of what makes this. Uh, genuinely great film. Um, not, I think maybe not quite, I don't think I liked it quite as much as Pig, but this is, this is, uh, this is sort of feels like a small classic in the making. Well, and we haven't talked at all about just how good Deb Patel is in it, right? I mean, this is a movie that where the central actor has to work and the movie is pretty much entirely dependent on whether or not he does. So I, I actually, I feel like he's been a little overpraised. I'm going to be honest. And for, for this role, it's not that he's bad. He's perfectly good. But he's mostly there as a sort of wondrous cipher yeah. for, for the incredible imagery that David Lowry cooks up. And this, I think, you know, he, he is, he, he fits in. He, he gives himself fully to this part. I, I don't want to say he's bad in it. And I don't want to say he's not committed but I think there are that he he's not absolutely central to the appeal here, um, and that this is this is the David Lowry show and not the David Lowry and Dev Patel show. Well, I, I and I I I thought Dev Patel was fine in this movie, and like I think Dev Patel is actually very good in this movie because he he's asked to do a certain thing, which is yeah. as Peter says to be a wondrous cipher, and I think he does it well. But I will say that. I've, I found myself enjoying more every supporting performance in this film. Like even Aaron Kellyman, who we have talked about before, uh, who is the, uh, who, who plays Winifred in this movie, the, the headless ghost who has a head, as I mentioned. Who is also uh, the bad guy. Uh, was also a, a kind was of a bad guy in Falcon and the Winter Soldier and like yeah. the weird. And, and Solo. Yeah. Yes. She's the, the she almost is, bad guy, but then we're supposed to like her at the end and so on. She is terrible in both of those, uh, pro in the Star Wars and the MCU thing but she is very good in this I, I liked her a lot I thought she was very funny it was a, it's a very funny oh see sequence. I don't think she's very good in this I think David Lowry just does good stuff with her by oh, casting her essentially as a as a a blank who you right he literally the whole thing is he can't figure her out and yeah. what's going on and so she she her but she's, her very, job she's is good to in that, she's, blank, again she she's good in that role yes. and she does she does what she's supposed to do I mean same That's with uh, well, she, same with Barry Keown uh who is the bandit who is uh, who? People will probably most remember from Dunkirk. He's the he's the kid who dies on the boat in Dunkirk, and he's got like kind of like he he has he has a very interesting face. I'll put it that way, uh, and it and it works to great effect here. Uh, he has like an especially British face. I'll put it that way. It, it works it works well here. Um, and also uh, Joel Edgerton as the Lord yeah. and Alicia Vikander as the lady in that. Um, 
uh, in that sequence. And I, I just thought everybody, everybody is is very, very good in this movie and gives Dev Patel kind of a lot to react against, um, I, which is which is which is my probably my favorite thing about it. But I think part of what is interesting about his performance and that makes it more than a wondrous cipher is that Dev Patel, like Gawain himself, is operating in a logic and a mindset that is fundamentally just not really accessible to most of us. Like, we haven't grown up in honor cultures. We haven't grown up in chivalric cultures. We haven't, you know, been through the kind of hero's journey that he goes through. And then he meets all of these people who are operating in their own even stranger dream logics, right? I mean, part of what's interesting about Erin Kellyman's performance is that she plays St. Winifred with total conviction, right? She, you know, she is... She's not doing what she was asked to do in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which is sort of make the case for something. She just has to inhabit a position that to us and to Gowan seem totally incomprehensible, that she's this person who's walking around who visibly to us has a head, (laughs) um, who has this experience of her body that is completely illegible, that she cannot communicate, that she can say aloud, but that other people will not believe is true on some level. And Patel has to play a character who has to use his own code, right? Like, okay, you know, he asks what he'll get out of it if he finds her head. He has to sort of go ahead without a bargain and go on what seems like a total fool's quest um, to do what she wants. He has to accept her logic and then it ends up working this act of magic that brings the Green Knight's axe back to him. Similarly, you know, in the, you know, the castle where he encounters this incredibly weird married couple, he has to navigate a way through their sort of dream logic. Um, again, using a chivalric, like finding access to a chivalric code that is alien to us to guide him in a situation where the rules do not apply as he understands them. And I mean, I think especially in sort of the flash forward that comes near the end of the movie, which I won't discuss in detail because I I think it's really worth experiencing for yourself. You know, he has to communicate an entire life in a couple of minutes uh, with no dialogue um, and does it really beautifully and in a way that makes the logic of the final scene, which again is not explained, sort of comprehensible to the audience. Um, And, you know, yes, this is the David Lowry show, but especially sort of in, to get the human emotion through the overpowering beauty of these images, to make the act of decision-making within that code clear, and to make just the plot mechanics clear at the end, without the aid of expository dialogue, is legitimately really impressive. And I think he does a beautiful job with it. Yeah, that that final sequence is really, really incredible. Um, and it actually reminds me of one of my favorite third act sequences uh, of the last, I don't know, maybe ever, um, which is the, the third act to 25th Hour, the Spike Lee movie about um, Edward Norton character who is about to go to jail for dealing drugs. And that the final sequence is his father outlining the life he could have if he sort of ran and didn't show up to go to jail. But it's it's similar, right? It's in that it's sort of here is the alternative life that you could have like taken from this moment, except in 25th hour, it's fully narrated. And you make a very good point, Alyssa, that um, 
that in Green Knight you get kind of the same thing, and it's totally dialogue free. It's done entirely uh, with Dev Patel's face and with imagery, and it's, it's, it's also, really an exceptional. And it's sequence. also notably an area an era, area that totally diverges from the Arthurian legend. So even if you have a lot to go on, there is not ever a narrative where Gawain becomes king, right? You know, the sort of the Essel character, the prostitute that he has a relationship with. Again, it's sort of not a figure in Arthurian mythology. There is no sort of princess that he ends up married to. And now I've gone ahead and sort of spoiled the sequence for you. But trust me, if my, you know, fumbling description here does not do justice to it. So it's really off the map, right? It can't even rely on cultural literacy there. I think um, this mo- movie is completely spoiler proof because you don't go see this movie to find out what happens. You go yeah. see this movie to see how it happens and to yes. feel it. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on The Green Knight? Alyssa? Thumbs way up. Peter? Big thumbs up. It's a modest thumbs up. It's, it's, this movie's a bit of a wank. Uh, but it's it's a it's a very good looking <laughs> wank. So, um, oh, sunny. Uh, all right, that is it for today's show. Uh, if you loved it, make sure to check out our members only bonus episode on Stillwater and whether or not we should watch it. Alyssa's going to convince us, or maybe not. We'll see. Um, and make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. Uh, if you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.